If you've got your Bible, you can open to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel 11. We've been in a series uh, on not fearing. We're calling it Fear Not. Uh, we went through, obviously, the month of October, which is kind of associated with horror movies and ghouls and goblins and witches and all that, that stuff in the culture. Um, but we've been looking at the life of David, this person in Scripture who God used in many mighty ways uh, and the chances that he had in many different situations to be fearful. And what that teaches us about pushing through fear, about trusting God in our fears, what we've discovered is God telling us to not fear is not because there's nothing to be afraid of. It's not because nothing bad's ever going to happen to us. Uh, He tells us not to fear simply because he is bigger than the stuff that we're afraid of. He is bigger than our enemies. He is bigger than the attack that that the enemy may have against us. And so today we're going to switch gears a little bit in this series and look at something that you may not even think of as something to be afraid of, but in my years in ministry, I've discovered there definitely are people who find this uncomfortable, who find this difficult, um, and who are afraid of what will happen as we look at these things. In fact, there's going to be two things today that we discover from our story that I believe God's word is telling us and challenging us not to be afraid of. So we're going to start in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and 2 Samuel 11 is a very famous chapter. It's the story of what we say David and Bathsheba. David and Bathsheba. This is the story of David's most famous sin. This is the time where David missed God the worst. And I'm going to summarize the story for you here in chapter 11. We'll read a little bit at the end of the chapter. We're really going to focus in on chapter 12 today. But in 2 Samuel chapter 11, David, who is at this point now the king of Israel, we've kind of followed him before he becomes king. We've seen him anointed as the future king. We've seen him slay the giant Goliath and win this great victory for his people. Last week, we saw him face persecution and go on the run because the former king, King Saul, was jealous of him and envious of him. Uh, And so we've seen David before he's ascended to the throne. Now the shoe's on the other foot. Instead of being on the run and, and persecuted by the king, now David is the king. Everything has gone well for him. God has favored him. God has prospered him. David is sitting pretty, so pretty, in fact, that as we find our story begin in chapter 11, David's army is out fighting the war, and David is so confident, so cocky perhaps, that he doesn't even go out and fight with his men. It says that when, at the time of the year when kings would go off to war, well, David didn't go off to war. He's hanging back, and so he's one of very few men left in Jerusalem, and we find this story with a very beautiful young lady named Bathsheba uh, who goes up on the rooftop, and I don't really know why, I haven't been able to find this culturally, how this works, but for whatever reason, Bathsheba is up on the rooftop, and she is taking a bath. Right? She, she is naked. She is out there in all of her glory. Um, and David catches a peek. And he doesn't turn away. Right? Uh, he has the opportunity to say, okay, she probably doesn't know there's any men here in town. She probably doesn't realize this. I don't need to see this and divert his eyes. But he does the thing that in our generation so many of us do. And he fixes his gaze on something he was not designed to see. This is somebody else's wife. 
This is someone who he is not married to. He's not designed to see that. And so he gives in to the temptation. He watches her. And he decides, I want that. And so as the king, he has servants and has people around him who can make things happen for him. So he sends somebody to her to bring him, her back. And she comes to David and they unite, to use a PG-13 way of saying it, right? <laughs> they commit adultery. They sin. They step outside of what God has designed for their sexual purity. So they commit adultery, big sin, not a sin that is unusual in our generation, but it is a sin that hits God's top ten list, right? This is forbidden for God's people, thou shalt not commit adultery. David knew this was wrong. Bathsheba knew this was wrong, and yet they both participated anyway. Uh, I tend to think that David is more guilty here than she is because I'm sure you're afraid of what's the king going to do if I say no, and there's some complications there. Uh, But regardless, it's not good. But it doesn't stop there, right? Because as you probably know the story, something can happen when you get pregnant. Spoiler alert for kids who haven't had this conversation with your parents. Uh, When you have sex, you can get pregnant. Uh, And she did. One time shot, she got pregnant, uh, and she sends word back to David, hey, I'm pregnant. Well, David knows, and by the way, one thing I should have mentioned, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, is out fighting the war for David. Uriah is faithfully serving his king while his king is serving his wife. Already a tragedy at that point, isn't it? But it gets worse. Uh, So she sends word to David, hey, I'm pregnant. David immediately has the thought that many of us have when we're caught in sin. How can I cover this up? How can I hide this? How can I make sure that people don't find out what I've done. And so he hatches a plan. He decides, well, Uriah's out fighting the battle. I'm going to send word to my general Joab and say, hey, put Uriah on the front lines and then send a signal for everybody to fall back except Uriah. And he's going to be out there and we're going to basically sacrifice Uriah to the Ammonites. And that's what they do. And his plan succeeds. Remember, if you were here last week, we discovered Saul tried this almost identical plan with David. Saul wanted David to die. Saul sent David out to war and said, hey, I'm expecting the Philistines are going to do this for me. They're going to take care of my problem, which they did not. Uh, But David had a more devious plan. He said, I'm not going to just send him to war. I'm not just going to put him on the front lines. I'm going to make sure he's abandoned at the front lines. And has no protection. And sure enough, David's plan succeeds and Uriah dies. So now David's not just an adulterer. Now he's a murderer. Also on God's top ten list. Certainly in our culture, we would consider the second sin far worse than the first. Right? The first one was bad. Something that should not happen. The second one is awful. The selfishness. The, the, the abuse of power that went into this is wretched. And so we're going to pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, it says, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, speaking of Bathsheba, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing 
that David had done displeased the Lord. On the surface, this looks like David got away with everything, right? He successfully eliminated Uriah. He successfully is able to bring Bathsheba in and his wife. Nobody's going to do the math down to the day and realize when the baby's born that this was a couple days too early for David and Bathsheba who have done this the right way. David thinks he's gotten away with it. The equivalent of this, I think, sometimes in our culture would be when we have an abortion. Right? Let's hide the sin. Let's make sure nobody knows what happens and this is a way that nobody's gonna ever gonna find out. And unfortunately, Christian men and women give in to that temptation far too frequently. Hiding sin doesn't work. The Bible says you can be sure your sin will find you out. And at this moment, David looks like he's gotten away with it. Not only did he get to have sex with Bathsheba, which was his desire. Not only has he gotten away with eliminating her husband so he doesn't get discovered for being in sin, but now he's been able to make this girl his wife. This beautiful girl, this one who, who stood out to him, now he's brought her in and she is his wife. It looks like David has gotten away with it and nobody knows, but God knows. And it says, as we finish chapter 11, the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The reality is, all of us, as men and women of God, as sons and daughters of the king, we get into stuff that displeases the Lord, don't we? And so, we're going to discover in this story that it's really easy to look down on David. It's really easy to condemn David. It's really easy to say, I've never committed murder, which hopefully most of us have not. Right? But the reality is, God doesn't look at sin the way that we do. Anything that displeases God is sin. Anything in us that's omission, things that we didn't do that we knew we were supposed to, or commission, things that we did that we knew we weren't supposed to, if it displeases God, then it's sin. And I know sin's not the most popular thing to talk about in our generation, and it's not the most comfortable thing to discuss, but if we're going to be faithful to the word of God, we're going to have to discuss it from time to time. We're going to have to be aware that sin creeps up in our life. Even as believers, remember, David is favored of God. David is anointed by God. David is chosen by God. God has even declared, David is a man after my own heart. And yet, despite these incredible attributes, despite all the ways we've seen David be faithful through this series and many others we haven't covered, in this moment, David, the one who is close to God, the one who worships God, the one who honors God, David gives in to his selfish, sinful nature and does something awful. And the thing that I've done that is awful may not look like the thing that David's done that is awful. Or the thing that you've done that is awful may not look exactly the same as what David has done. But the reality is, if we're not careful, all of us can end up in the same position. All of us can get into a place where we are contrary to the word of God. Where we are living differently than his calling on our life. And we think nobody knows. But God knows. So we're going to pick up the story in chapter 12. If you will turn to chapter 12 in 2 Samuel with me. God has a plan. 
And as usual, God's plan usually looks like a person. So God chooses a person, a prophet named Nathan, and he sends him on a mission. It says in verse 1, the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, so Nathan's going to use an, an allegory, a parable, similar to the way that Jesus taught, an earthly story with a symbolic spiritual meaning to illustrate what's going on here. He it says, when he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. So this lamb was like a pet, right? Like it was, it was the way that some of you are with your dogs or your cats. You know who you are. Uh, like you can put yourself in that scenario here. Verse 4 says, Now a traveler came to the rich man. But the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. The selfishness, the greed, the disrespect to have so much and steal from the one who has so little. Verse 5, David burned with anger against the man. This is righteous anger. Right? This is just anger. If this were to happen, we should be angry that someone would do it. It says, David burned with anger against the man, and he said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. David pronounces his own death sentence. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Most of the time we use that phrase, it has a different connotation, doesn't it? Yo, you're the man, right? You are the man. Well, Nathan tells David, you're the man. And this is not the moment when you want to be the man. He pronounces probably the four most terrifying, horrifying words David would hear in his entire life. David, you are this man. He says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all that had been too little, I would have given you even more. David, I am for you and not against you. David, I have blessed you. David, I have been faithful to you. David, I have taken care of you. You see, sometimes we can misconstrue God's blessings as God's permission. Just because God is blessing us, just because God is favoring us, doesn't mean God is now empowering us to go do whatever we want. Right? You see, the dangerous place to be oftentimes is not in the place where we're not walking in God's blessing. Sometimes the dangerous place to be is when we are walking in God's blessing. Because we can lie to ourselves and deceive ourselves into thinking that somehow we can get away with whatever we want. And God had blessed David up to this point for his faithfulness, for his obedience. But now David has stepped outside of that, has stepped outside of what he knows God wants and God's anger burns for what David has done. In fact, he goes so far as to say this in verse 9. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? 
Some heavy words, church. I don't know how many of us in this room today, if we were honest with ourselves, but we're in a place right now where we're doing what's evil in God's eyes. Maybe that's something similar to David and Bathsheba. Maybe that's something between us and a computer screen or a phone. Maybe that's something completely unrelated to sexual impurity. But we know the thing that we're in deep down inside that God has said no. That God has forbidden this. And yet we have chosen to partake in it anyway. God loves David enough to send him Nathan to say, you're wrong, king. You've stepped out of line. You have missed God. And I hope and pray that if that's you today, that I can stand in the shoes of Nathan and love you enough through the power of the Holy Spirit living in you to alert you to the fact that if you're living that way, if you're walking in something outside of what God has for you, You've done evil in his sight. It doesn't mean you're an evil person. It doesn't mean that God hates you. But it does mean God expects you to get it right. It does mean God expects us to repent of it. It does mean we got to get it fixed. So I want to give you two things today that we should not fear. Two things that are easy for us to get frustrated with, to push back against, to resist, that I believe God is calling us not to resist. The first one is this. Do not fear accountability. Do not fear accountability. You see, in many situations, what Nathan did would have resulted in the death penalty, not for David, but for Nathan. The audacity... To go before the king and call out the king's sin could have very easily resulted in Nathan meeting God face to face that day. Nathan put his life on the line. Number one, to honor God and to obey what God had called him to do. But number two, I believe as an act of deep, true love towards David. David, you're wrong. And I love you enough, I'm going to tell you. David, you've missed it. And I care enough about you. I care enough about the call that God has on your life. I care enough about the purpose that God has put you on this throne. That I'm going to risk my life and come before the king, the one who just had somebody's life taken because he wanted his sin to be kept secret. I'm going to come before that king and expose his sin. It's courageous. And you see, many times we have somebody in our life who loves us enough to tell us the truth about the stuff that we're in that has missed God. And what do we decide? Well, they're not our friend. Well, they're against me. That's hateful. That's judging, right? We have all these words that will put on it to resist accountability so we can continue to live the way that we want to, so we can continue to follow our feelings and justify what we're doing. And praise God in heaven, David did not fear accountability. When the accountability came, David did not try to shift the blame. David did not order Nathan's head on a platter. David did not act in anger or rage. David responded well, and we're going to see his response in a minute. But I'm going to challenge you today, don't fear accountability. 
In fact, the book of Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6, says this. Uh, in Proverbs 27, 6, it, it tells us that wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. See, uh, somebody who loves you is going to hurt you when you need to be hurt. I had a pastor, Jason Delgado, the man who started this church, man who I, I first stepped in as youth pastor underneath, and my man I see as my mentor, man I still see as my pastor today. And I love this man with all my heart. We, we spoke this week. We speak frequently. I'm so grateful for him in my life. But Jason kicked my butt harder and more than anybody I know. Like that dude would call me into his office and rip me a new one on a frequent basis. And why did he do it? Because he loved me. Now, he didn't do it inappropriately. He wasn't like cussing me out. He wasn't even shouting. But he was firm when he saw me step out of God's best. This is not what God has for you, Troy. This is not what he brought you here for. And, and you know what? I've got more respect and a deeper bond with that guy than just about any man on earth. Because he loved me enough to stab me from the front. Now, he didn't go behind my back and talk about me. He didn't blast me to other people. He's, I don't think he's ever said a negative word about me to anybody but me. But trust me, he has said some negative words about me to me. Why? Because he loves me. And I believe all of us need somebody like that in our life. All of us need somebody who we have given the knife to and says, stab me in the front. If you see me step out of God's best, if you see me even getting close to something that, that is not in line with the word of God, I need you to call me out. I need you to tell me. I need you to love me enough to keep me from ending up there. Do not fear accountability. Accountability doesn't just happen. It isn't usually organic. Most of the time, God isn't going to raise up a prophet and send him to your house. Right? David got blessed. In this situation, most of the time, accountability has to be intentional. It has to be something where you have sought somebody out that you see spiritual maturity in. You recognize they are further along on this faith journey than I am. And they're going to love me enough to speak into my life. Do not fear accountability. Moving forward to chapter 13, or excuse me, to verse 13 in 2 Samuel 12. It says, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David's response was not to blame Bathsheba for being naked, right? It, it wasn't to, to blame it on, you just don't understand the pressures of being a king, and man, it's just been really hard lately, and I messed up, right? Like, he didn't justify his sin. He didn't minimize his sin. He didn't blame somebody else, and he didn't lash out at the one who held him accountable, David put the sin exactly where the sin belonged, on his own shoulders, right? And we are so good at deflecting. We are so good at pointing somewhere else. If, we're a, if you're a man in this room, I believe it is in our DNA to deflect blame because we are all descendants of Adam. And what happened when Adam showed up and asked, God said, Adam, hey, how come you ate this fruit? You know, the first two things, the first thing out of Adam's mouth was, see, we think he blamed it on Eve, but he did, but he didn't just blame it on Eve. Listen to what he said. He said, the woman you gave me. He blamed Eve and he blamed God. Well, if you'd have given me a better woman, this would have never happened, God. <laughs> Sorry, God, she was my only option. I looked for a better one, but she was the only one I could find. 
right? The woman you gave me. This isn't my fault, God. This is her fault. And ultimately, it's your fault. See, it's in our DNA as men from the beginning, right? From all the way back that we want to look and we want to blame it on our wife. We want to blame it on God. We want to blame it on somebody else, and we're good at it. And somehow, some way, David in this moment is sensitive enough to the voice of the Holy Spirit that he pushes through that temptation to put the blame somewhere else, and he says, I blew it. I messed up. I have sinned against the Lord. I believe that's one of the most powerful statements any of us can ever make. So we come to the realization, I've sinned against the Lord. This isn't somebody else's fault. It's not my dad's fault. It's not mom's fault for the way that she raised me. It, right? Like we, we can point in all the different directions. It's my culture's fault. It's my generation's fault. Well, if I didn't grow up in a generation where with the internet, then it wouldn't be so easy for me to see this stuff, right? Like we can point it in all kinds of directions, but ultimately sin is on the sinner. And our generation is really bad at taking responsibility. But I believe God's voice is compelling us and calling us to own our sin. David says, I've sinned against the Lord. It's powerful. It's life-changing when we can embrace that. What we see in David is a repentant heart. In fact, we see him make a very powerful repentance. If you got your Bible, you can turn to Psalm chapter 51. We're going to read a little bit from Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a worship song that David wrote in response to what we just read in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. In fact, it says this at the beginning of Psalm 51. There, there's these notes that are really easy to skip past, but I married a woman who helps me realize I need to read those notes at the beginning before you get to verse 1. And here's what it says before verse 1 in Psalm 51. It says, For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David committed adultery with Bathsheba. So it kind of sets the tone. It gives us the context. This isn't just a random repentance psalm. This is a psalm of specific repentance. We have record of the sin, and we have record of the response. And I believe both are very enlightening for us. So the second thing I want to tell you is this. Do not fear repentance. Do not fear repentance. Number one, don't fear accountability. If God loves you enough to put somebody in your life who will speak up, embrace that. If you haven't yet found that person, look for that. Don't fear accountability. Secondly, don't fear repentance. See, we do all kinds of mental gymnastics and we fight in all kinds and resist in all kinds of ways to not have to repent. We, we try to find ways to, to justify our sin or to say, well, this isn't really sin, this is okay, but we know deep down inside the voice of the Holy Spirit has said, this isn't what I have for you. This isn't what I've called you to. This isn't what I've purposed you for. And we're so good at deflecting that and ignoring that and resisting that. But can I tell you today, church, do not fear repentance. Repentance is one of the greatest gifts God has given us. Repentance is, is an incredible way to hit the spiritual reset button. God, I'm sorry. God, I've missed it. God, will you forgive me? 
You see, all of us, when we first come to Jesus, we need to come to Jesus in an act of repentance. For salvation is, is in part the realization of who God is, but it's also in part a realization of who I am. It's a realization that I don't have it all together, that I haven't lived the way God wants me to, and God, I'm sorry. It's owning my sin. But repentance does not stop at salvation. Repentance starts at salvation. It's the beginning of a life of repentance. It's not the end of repentance. So what I want to do is I want to work through Psalm 51 a little bit. We're going to pick out five things we need to know about repentance. Not all of them will come from Psalm 51, but the majority of them will. But five things to know about repentance. Number one, the best repentance should be immediate. The best repentance should be immediate. Now, I say the best repentance because we serve a God of grace, and if something happened 20 years ago and I haven't repented for it, I can still repent for it. Thank God I can still get it right. Even if I've missed it, even if I've ignored his voice, even if he's convicted me time and time and time again and I've said no, when I come to the point where I realize it was wrong and I'm willing to own it and repent from it, I can do it at any point, which praise God for it. But if we're going to be people of the best repentance, if we're going to be the people that God desires us to be, man, that best repentance will always be immediate. Look at David. Nathan confronts David in 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 12, and in verse 13, David repents. As soon as he realizes he's stepped outside of God's best, as soon as the, the veil is taken back from his eyes, and he recognizes his sin for what it is, he deals with it at that moment, and he repents. As soon as you recognize you've missed it, make it right. I, I tell people this all the time because sometimes the, 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 there's kind of two, two different kinds of people who make fresh starts in, in our services. The end of every service we offer, hey, you need to make a fresh start with God. And, and there's the people who, man, this may be the first time or the first time in years. They have wandered from God and there's these radical transformations. And man, I'm so thrilled every time we see that. And then we have like our habitual fresh starters, right? And we don't really have a lot of them anymore. Uh, in fact, I don't know that we have any habitual fresh starters anymore. There, there have been a couple people in our church that probably made like 15 fresh starts. And I would pull them aside and say, look, you don't have to wait until next Sunday to get right with God, right? Like you don't have to do this in service. You are empowered by God to get right with God in your car, in your shower, next to your bed. Like you, you don't have to do this with us. Man, when you feel that voice, when you hear that, when you realize you've missed it, make it right, right then and there. And I think that's the place God wants us to get to. Man, where we're hearing God's voice for ourselves, where it doesn't have to happen in a service. But I also think there's a role for the pulpit. There's a role for the preacher to, to call us back to the word of God. And sometimes we've gotten into a place where we've ignored God's truth and we've ignored what God is speaking to us and we need to be confronted with it. So the best repentance will always be immediate. Second thing I want you to know about repentance is that true repentance must be sincere. True repentance must be sincere. It can't be, God, forgive me, but you know I'm going to go do this again tomorrow. Right? Right? can't be, God, I don't want to hold, be, I, I don't want to answer for my sin, I want to be right with you, but yeah, when I get back in this situation again, I'm going right back to what I did before. See, repentance is actually a connotation of turning from sin. 
It's not just confessing sin, but it's turning away from sin. I was going this direction, and now I'm going this direction. And so true repentance must be sincere. We actually saw David's predecessor, Saul, repent of the thing that God said, I'm going to take the kingdom from you for. We saw Saul repent for it, but we didn't see Paul, or excuse me, Saul's sincerity in that. Saul repented. He said, hey, I'm wrong, but he repented to Samuel. He never repented to God. And he even said, I want to go with you, Samuel, to worship your God. Saul didn't personalize it. He didn't recognize that that he could deal with God himself. He wanted to work through someone else. Now, it's great to have people who can pray with you. Man, at the end, we go back into worship, we're going to have some prayer partners down front. And if you need to have somebody pray with you, that's fine. But understand this, if it's me, if it's Dave, if it's Susan, if it's somebody else, like, we're not the one forgiving you. We're not the one you're getting right with. We're just somebody that God is using you to help you talk to him, but he's the one who you got to repent to. He's the one who you've sinned against, and he's the only one who can make you right. Amen? So true true repentance has to be sincere. It's got to be, God, I recognize my sin. Not just I don't want to pay a penalty for my sin. Not just get me out of the consequences of my sin. God, forgive me of my sin. If you're a parent, we've all recognized in our kid, the time that they have said they were sorry simply to get out of being in trouble, right? Like, that happens very frequently. That's not repentance. And I wonder how many times God looks at us the same way we look at those kids and kind of rolls his eyes. Says, do you really mean it? Are you really going to get this right? Now, I don't think that means that if we repent and then we, we, we make another mistake, that that invalidates the repentance. Repentance is about the heart, right? It doesn't mean you're never going to miss God again. In fact, Proverbs says that a righteous man falls seven times but gets back up again. So repentance doesn't mean I'm never going to miss this ever again. Repentance means, means God, my heart is I don't ever want to do this again. My heart is I want to honor you above all else. My heart is I want to get this right. And so true repentance must be sincere. Listen to David's words in Psalm 51. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Iniquity is intentional sin, forethought sin, planned sin. And cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. And my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. David doesn't diminish the sin. He doesn't try to barter with God. He doesn't try to make a, God, look, it really wasn't that bad. I know it looks bad on the surface, but you know my heart wasn't. David owns it. God, I blew it. And you are right to be angry about this. You are right to be upset. What I did was wrong. Forgive me. God, not because of who I am, but because who you are. Because you're a God of unfailing love. You're a God of incredible mercy. So God, forgive me. That is a sincere heart. That is sincere repentance. Third thing we need to see about repentance is true repentance takes personal responsibility kind of hinted at this already, 
But just to make it clear, true repentance takes personal responsibility. It doesn't deflect blame. It doesn't put it in anybody else's court. Look at Psalm 51.4 again. Against you, you only have I sinned. He didn't say we sinned. He didn't try to draw somebody else in on this. He didn't try to pin the blame on Bathsheba at all. He owned it 100% himself. I have sinned. He says, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. If you want to really get right with God, drop the explanations. Right? Aren't we so good at explaining away our sin? Well, God, you know, you know that dad was this way, and that was my example, and I grew up with this. Or mom always struggled with this, right? Like we're so good at it, and, and I'm not against psychology or counseling or therapy. I recommend those things. Yes, dig into some of the roots of why you've ended up the way that you have, but just because that's how you've, that, that, that's created a scenario for you to end up where you have doesn't absolve you from the sin. Does that make sense? Like, figure out where you got there so you can get out, so you can pull up that route and then start a new life. So, yes, counseling and therapy has a great value in that to help you get to the root of that stuff. But it doesn't mean it's somebody else's fault, right? My sin is my fault and my fault alone. My sin is why Jesus had to die. This is not some casual thing. This is not something that I can just kind of... Well, you know, I'll get to it when I get to it. Man, this is heavy and it's serious. we got to take personal responsibility. Number four, I'm going to step away from Psalm 51 for a minute. I hope you'll understand why. Number four is this. The best repentance is regular. The best repentance is regular. Jesus, in giving us the model prayer as he answers to his disciples, they say, hey, Lord, teach us to pray. Jesus, in the Lord's Prayer that so many of us memorized as kids, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 12, says, And forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. He says, how do we pray? He says, we pray seeking forgiveness. This is a regular thing. This is a frequent thing. This is a daily thing. Instead of waiting until, man, it's added up so much and my life's about to fall apart. And if I don't get this fixed right now, if I don't get this right right now, I might lose something significant. Instead of waiting until then, I can actually just deal with it on a daily basis. God, I had a bad thought when I was driving down Goodman Road. That's never happened, right? God, forgive me for what I thought about that person. Forgive me for what I said to that person. Forgive me for how I waved to that person, right? <laughs> Whatever it might be, like, you can deal with it on a daily basis instead of letting it stack up. Man, we can just take care of it. Here's the beauty of daily confession. When confession is daily, I can deal with little sins. When I repent once a year, or once every six months, or once every five years, or whenever, man, life falls apart, what am I repenting for? I'm repenting of the big stuff that David's having to repent for here. And I'm sorry for, for massive, significant sin. I'm sorry for breaking the Ten Commandments. If I can confess on a daily basis, you know what I get to confess for? God, I'm sorry I didn't read your Bible yesterday. What if you only went one day of missing the word before you got it fixed? How different would your life look? Man, if you're just on a daily basis, God, I missed it yesterday. Forgive me. And immediately you're back in the word. And instead of waiting until like the next fast, the next reading plan that the church puts out, the next time where God really convicts you to get back in the word, it was just like, man, 
God, I missed it yesterday. I got lazy. God, forgive me. And boom, you're right back in the word of God. How different would our lives look if our repentance was regular? Back in 2013, my wife read a book called Too Busy Not to Pray by Bill Hybels. In fact, we both read it that year. I, I did a series on it, and this was back before we had our podcast, right? So I looked today. We've got three of the seven services from that series on our podcast. So if you want to check them out on the podcast, you can catch a couple of them, but not the majority of them. Shout out to Dan Bearden for making our podcast happen every week. Give it up for Dan. There's a book called Too Busy Not to Pray, and in this book... Uh, Bill Hybels talks about how he used the ACTS method. Now, many of you might be familiar with the ACTS method. Some of us may not. I, I want to explain it very briefly. It's a method of prayer for basically using kind of the Lord's Prayer as a template, as a model. Um, and so the ACTS method starts with A, adoration. Adoration. In other words, we go to God in worship first. The Bible says to enter his courts with praise, right? So we come to God not with Hey, God, I need a chance to get some overtime so I can pay for some Christmas presents, right? We can get to that, but when we come to God on a regular basis, we come to him with adoration. God, you're good. God, you're so faithful. God, you're amazing, right? Like we, we, we find something to, to adore him with. He is worthy of our adoration, and so we pray and we adore him. Secondly, we come with confession, using what we just looked at in Matthew chapter 5. That, hey, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven those who, who have trespassed against us, right? So, so we confess. So secondly, man, after we're done adoring God, after we're done worshiping him, we take a minute to get things right, to check our hearts. What's in us that shouldn't be there? Thirdly, we give him thanksgiving. We, we open our service today with a song called Grateful, a song of thanksgiving, a song of thankfulness. Man, the gratitude is so powerful, Gratitude eliminates in us a sense of entitlement, right? It eliminates in us grumbling and complaining. When we come back to realizing what God has done, it's an incredible antidote to the greed and, and lust for more that all of us have. And so gratitude, thankfulness is so powerful. And then fourth is supplication. The S, supplication is asking God to supply. My God shall supply all my needs according to his riches and glory. Amen. So supplication is making those requests known to him. Now, most of us, our prayer life, if we have one, looks a lot like the S, right? What, what are we going to ask God for? In fact, most of us, this is what we teach our kids, if we teach our kids to pray. Well, hey, if you want that, let, let's let God know. Judah's prayer request right now that he's had the last couple of days is, God, make the baby in mommy's belly a boy. Uh, <laughs> And he even prayed, God, even if it comes out a girl, make it a boy, which that's a whole different conversation. Uh, but God knows his heart on that prayer request. So, so that's his thing that he's asking for from God. And we teach our kids to ask God for things. But the thing that we've spent a lot more time teaching them to do is to thank God for things. What can, what do you, what can you thank God for today? And they've kind of gotten in a rut. God, thank you for mommy. Thank you for daddy. Thank you for Lexi. Thank you for the baby. Thank you for the food. Amen. Right? Like, they, it's kind of predictable, but they're grateful. So we're teaching them to do that. And, and the, what it does is it pushes us beyond simply going to God as the cosmic genie. I believe God wants to answer our prayers. I believe God wants to answer bigger prayers than most of us are praying. I believe God is all-powerful. 
I believe God wants to show up in our lives in a mighty way, but God doesn't want to just be the one that we turn to when we need something. He actually wants to have a relationship with us. And so the power of the ACTS method, and there are other, I'm not saying this is the only way to pray. I'm not saying you got to get this right and just do this, but, but if you don't have a lot of confession in your life, if, if, if this is something that you lack, I mean, the ACTS method, having something that's disciplining you to confess on a daily basis can radically change your prayer life, can, can take you to places that, that your prayer has never gone. Um, so back in 2013, Melody started doing the ACTS method thanks to this book, introducing it to her. Um, and, I, and I talked to her about it actually last night, and I asked her kind of share how that has impacted you, especially when it comes to this area of confession. And she said, look, it was huge for me because up until that point, my prayer life was supplication. God, this is what I need. That was the vast majority of my prayer life. Um, she said it helps her spiritually to, to, to get rid of that stuff, to deal with that stuff, that, that, that it actually allows her to, again to deal with smaller things instead of just big things because she's confessing the little stuff. In fact, she told me last week we had a, a disagreement before breakfast. Nobody else ever has one of those, I'm sure. So we, we, we had some tension in the house and some stuff that she was frustrated with me about that I probably didn't get done, that I needed to get done. Uh, and she texted me that morning, I don't know, like 10 o'clock. Uh, and she's like, hey, I'm sorry for being grumpy with you this morning. It's like, no problem. I, by this point, I think I had forgotten she was grumpy. I, you know, had, it was, was caught up in my work. It wasn't a big deal. But she felt that little bit of bad attitude, that little bit of, of mistreating was worthy of repenting for. But what she told me last night was, well, you know why I repented to you for that? And I said, no, why? She said, because I had to repent to God for it. Because that was my C. When I got to my ACTS that morning, I confessed, God, I was impatient with, with my husband. And so then I had to go get it fixed with you. And so not only does it help us get right with God in the vertical, frequent confession, regular confession now empowers us to get right with people in the horizontal. And that is powerful. That is life-changing. That's amazing. I'm so grateful that I have a wife who's in front of God on a daily basis, who's confessing her sin on a daily basis. What an amazing asset that is to our family, to me. What a blessed husband I am. So I empower you. I challenge you, man. If, if this is something you don't see, if you are one of those, man, I confess when, when it gets bad. I confess when, man, my, we're going to counseling. I confess when, when things are on the rocks, but not really before that. Man, pursue a, a lifestyle of daily repentance. See what happens when, when you'll Begin to go to God in that way. I think it will radically change your life. Number five, true repentance must look forward. True repentance must look forward. You see, all repentance looks back. All repentance is, is a reflection on, on what we have done and where we have missed it. And all repentance looks inward. God, what's in me that doesn't belong there? But the best repentance, in fact, I would say true repentance also looks forward. It's not just about, God, forgive me what I have done. It's God, empower me to leave that behind. It's God, free me from this sin. Break the chains. If this is a habit, God, give me wisdom on what I need to do to get past this. See, true repentance always looks forward. Look at Psalm 51. 
In verse 10, David says, God created me a pure heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. David looked in, and he looked back, and he saw stuff he was not proud of. He saw stuff that was wrong, stuff that was sin, stuff that did not belong. But he didn't stop at looking in, and he didn't stop at looking back. Then he looked forward, and he said, God, if we can get this right, if you can take this junk from me, if in your mercy and your grace we can put this behind me, God, I'm going to let other people know. I'm going to teach transgressors your ways. I'm going to point people to your truth and your grace and your mercy. See, true repentance looks forward as well. God, I'm going to make a change. God, whatever this is that's in me that doesn't belong, I'm not just going to be content to let it stay here. I'm going to deal with this, and it's going to look different. And the danger of that, of course, is sometimes we make God promises and repentance and we don't fully keep them. Anybody else done that? I've been guilty of that many times. God, this is the last time I ever forget to read my Bible. Whoops. Right? Like that's happened a few times since that prayer. It's the last time that I'll ever say that word again. Right? Like, like sometimes we make promises and we don't keep them. But again, I believe repentance is about the heart. God recognizes your heart. Remember David's story. The first thing we saw is that man looks at the outside, but God looks at the heart. Why was David an adulterer and a murderer? The one that God chose and the one that God said, he's after my own heart. It wasn't because David always got it right on the outside. It's because David's had a heart to glorify God, to honor God, to follow God, and God recognized that heart. Repentance more than anything else is about my heart. It's about getting my heart right. It's about offering God myself. God, I've missed it and I've blown it. Forgive me and wash me and make me clean. First John 1 John 1.9 says famously that if we confess our sins, he being God, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, which that's amazing, but then to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. So he forgives me, so no longer does he hold my sin against me, but then he cleanses me. He makes me clean. Here's the thought that I had about regular repentance. Regular repentance is like spiritual hygiene. If, if you go a couple weeks without taking a bath, it's going to be nasty, right? You're not going to look pretty. Ain't nobody going to be around you. Like, there are going to be some issues if we go a while without taking a bath. And I think a lot of us take a little while in between repentance. And we build up some spiritual funk. We, 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 we allow some stuff to be there that doesn't belong. And so repentance is taking a bath. Or if you prefer, it's taking a shower. I'm a shower guy myself. Not that you need to know that, right? But, but, but repentance is getting that stuff washed off. It's taking some soap and some deodorant. Bless God, we live in a generation with deodorant, right? Hallelujah, we don't know how good we got it. But repentance is, is spiritual hygiene. It's just allowing God to wash us fresh 
and clean and new. If you're a believer, I don't think repentance is a matter of salvation. I don't think it's a matter of if I don't do this, I'm going to go to hell. If you've truly given your life to Jesus, what is it? It's a matter of restoring fellowship with the living God. He wants so much more for me than simply to go to heaven. He wants so much more for me than simply for me to be able to spend eternity with me. He wants to be in my life now. And repentance is spiritual hygiene that allows God's spirit to be close. That allows him to be near. Because I've been washed and made clean. Amen? Do you stand with us, church? I'm going to pray very quickly. The worship team is going to take over. We're going to do a couple songs of worship. And what I'm going to invite you to do is during these songs of worship, I want you to do business with God. I want you to get right with God. I want to release you, if you need to, to to kneel at your seat, kneel at your seat. If you want to come down front, come down front. If you want to pray with a prayer partner, grab one of us. But we've already communicated. If you come down front and you kneel, we're we're, we're not just going to step in. We may pray for you kind of from a distance or may put a hand on your shoulder. We're going to let you get alone with God. That's what you need. But man, we want to walk out of here today right with God, don't we? We want to walk out of here today knowing that That we've recognized our sin. We've owned our sin, whatever it is. And the sin in this room is going to be on uh, so many different levels. And and look completely different from one person to the next. I'm not worried about what the sin is. I'm worried about making sure we've made it right with God. That we've given it to Him. We've allowed Him to take it from us. And to give us that spiritual shower that we always need. So would you pray with me? Father God, I come before you right now. God, I'm so grateful that you are a God of mercy and a God of grace. You are a God who tells us that we can come boldly before the throne of grace. And so today, God, as your spirit moves in this place, we ask you to convict us of unconfessed sin. God, if there's anything in us, great or small, that doesn't look like Jesus, Holy Spirit, reveal it to our hearts. And empower us. Give us the courage to to deal with it, Father God. That we would not fear repentance. That we would not fear accountability. That we would not be worried about what somebody else thinks. God, but we would simply worry about what you think. And give this junk to you. God, we pray right now for restoration. For those who have been far from you for a long time. God, for those who have given into habit or addiction and have felt defeated and felt like they could never get it fixed, Lord, we rebuke that lie right now in Jesus' name, and we believe you're going to set them free today. God, that today is the day of repentance. Today is the day the chains are broken. Today is the day they get right. God, we pray for those who who may feel like, okay, I don't really have much to deal with because taking care of the big stuff, and I'm not an adultery, and I'm not a murderer, and God, I, I pray for those as well that they, there's stuff in them that maybe is on a smaller scale, but that doesn't belong there. God, we want to be fully conformed to the image of Jesus. We don't want to settle for, for almost. We don't want to settle for having it mostly right. God, we want to be as much like you as we possibly can. So reveal that to us, God, that we can deal with it, that we can be right with you, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray.